Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Be Real. I am so excited about the conversation that we are about to dive into with Dr. Jamar Tisby. But before we do that, I just want to give you a little update on the show. It's been a really cool season. We've had an opportunity to have some amazing guests. And because of that, we've got a growing audience who's discovering and becoming part of our community, which is sweet. So for those of you guys who have been here all along, if you want to give us a little help with that, with helping our audience um, find us, what you can do is you can check and make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast, whether that's on YouTube or your favorite podcast channel, or even better, both. That would be awesome. And if you are like an OG here and you've been here forever, here's a weird hack that will actually help more people find our community. You can unsubscribe and then resubscribe. Just like click, click. You just If you just want to be part of hijacking the system for the day, if you're a rebel like me and you're like, yes, I love a loophole, then just unsubscribe and resubscribe and we don't know how it works, but basically I think that makes the audience like it comes back into people's feed or into their interest stream with our most current work and the stuff that we've been talking about and the guests that we've been having. So you guys are the real deal. You're my favorites. That's why the only reason that we do this show is because of this community and because of the feedback that you guys give me. And we want to just keep bringing you great content. So anytime you can shoot me an email, Nicole at NicoleEunis.com or just send me a message over any social platform and we will find it there. I would love to help you with your sticky issues or take your guest suggestions, etc. Okay, so we're about to get into this conversation with Dr. Tisby. It is so powerful. And I want you guys to know just my backstory with this conversation around race and religion in America. Um, this has always been a little bit in the background of my own story. But I think particularly in the last three years, for many of us, this has been a huge reckoning in America. Um, the Ahmad Arbery murder, just for whatever reason, that was my moment where it hit me very deeply that... I want to look back on my life and make sure that I've done what I can to be educated, to be a part of whatever God is doing in bringing reconciliation and justice to our own country, and particularly to my own city here in Richmond, Virginia. It mattered to me uh, because I'm raising my children here in the South, in the former capital of the Confederacy. It matters to me because I care deeply about justice and equity like so many of you do as well. And a huge part of that education process for me was reading Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, and really um, a, a brilliantly written, concise commentary on the interaction and interplay between racism in America and the rise of the American church. And if you are a thoughtful person, if you are engaged in the church, I just consider this a must read, whether you agree completely with all of um, Jamar's sort of final assertions or not. He brings a wealth of scholarship and intelligence and wisdom and personal experience experience to bear in a way that I find deeply moving. So um, I'm really going to encourage you to check it out. If you want to learn more about Dr. Tisby, you can go to jamartisby.com. Check out his about page, read his story, um, engage personally with his own journey. And I think you might find that he uh, is here to help us learn, uh, to give us new insight, and also very practical ways that we can engage in this work. So I know you guys are going to love this conversation. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Jamar Tisby. Hello, I'm so glad to be here and talk with you. Man, I am so honored for this conversation. I, I don't normally get really like fangirl, but I just <laughs> so 
Gosh, I deeply, just as a fellow writer, just let's just start there. As a fellow writer, the deep appreciation I have for the concise work of The Color of Compromise, just on that level, like not even about the content, but your ability to weave a story, to take history and relevant like cultural narrative in a way that just absolutely opened my heart up to a completely different perspective on the American church, complicity and racism, regardless of what people think about that. Your, ooh, man, you're, it is succinct and it is strong. So thank you. Thank you for that work. I love hearing that because, I mean, we can and should talk about the history, but, you know, to, to, to make it kind of come alive or at least fit together yes. <laughs> in a way that yeah. people can follow um, is something that is severely lacking in the academy, which is, you know, where yes. I dwell in terms of being a historian. And uh, I, I just, I wasn't sure that I could pull it off, but I just tried to show continuity, which is yes. both yes. a historical reality and a narrative uh, principle is is, is the, the the flow of the story. I wanted us to understand that the past does impact the present because yes, it, it, just like a narrative, just like what happens in the beginning of the story has an impact of what happens in the middle and the end. So anyway, I'm very glad that you. It was readable. <laughs> oh, it was readable. How long? Do, how how long was that in the making? Would you say? I mean, I know that this is your yeah. life's work, but. To put that particular body of work together, it was not long. Um, mm. I wrote. I, I began writing it in twenty fall twenty seventeen. I wrote slowly, and you know, here and there, I probably got about forty percent done that way. Then, I was in grad school at the time, mm. so I had to wait okay. till the semester was done. So I did probably a 60% of the book in four to five weeks uh, mm. in May at the end, after the end of the semester. Yeah. I had to get through finals and, and, and all this stuff. And then I was like, okay, now I got to buckle down. So it was just all day, every day, hardcore for, and, and that kind of writing, I don't know what it is with other, but historical writing where everything has to have a footnote, everything has to be double mm. and triple check for, for, um, veracity takes a long, long time. And yeah. for me, it, it's, it, it, it didn't work very well to do like, you know, 30 minutes a day, because mm -hmm. by the time you get to the end of that 30 minutes, you've, you've, you've written one sentence and, and you've spent 29 of those minutes trying to find the reference, whatever it might be. So I just had to do a deep dive. Yeah. I mean, I've done, I've done both uh, as well. You know, you sort of take your six, 6 a.m. or 5.30 a.m. to 6.15 little chunks of time or just dive in. And the, la the last thing that I wrote, I mean, I wrote nonstop for like a week. And I, mm -hmm. I actually think the body, I think the writing is better. I think there's something about staying in your voice and staying in the moment. That's it's right. intense, right? But, and I would, I mean, you know, for those of you guys who have not read, this is going to be my number one recommendation. It already has been. You guys have heard me talk mm -hmm. about this since last year. Um, but I think this should be required. If you're, if you're serious about your faith, if you grew up in the American church, regardless of whether you agree 
with Dr. Tisby's last, I mean, people, I don't know why we have to say this so frequently. It is, books are not written for you to be indoctrinated into just one line of thinking. They're written to spark conversation and to start a discussion. So we can all be comfortable with that regardless of where you are. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to preach to my audience for a minute, but I just had to. Like, it's okay to go ahead and read through the whole thing. I think you're going to find so much more there that you need um, and so many places that can spark really fantastic discussion. So I, you know, I got to hear you and you're in Richmond. And um, one of the things that I was really delighted about was just to hear a little bit more of your personal story, those threads that have brought you to become the the academic activist that you are. Would you just share with us for a few minutes um, your personal story that's gotten you to where you are today? I think what people don't realize is um, as much as I talk about racism, particularly racism in the church, I still actively pursue healthy relationships with white evangelicals. Mm. Um, I think that's important because a lot of the people who would criticize my work aren't doing, aren't nearly as intentional mm-hmm. about pursuing relationships with different kinds of people. Um, so I live this stuff is what I'm trying to say. I became a Christian in high school through the ministry of a white evangelical church was not my choice. It just happened. <laughs> As God does. As God does. <laughs> writes the story. And um, it was great in the sense of finding a, a, a peer group mm. Um hearing the gospel really, you know, powerfully for the first time. And it was an authentic, you know, conversion and journey with Christ ever since. But at the same time, I was always one of the only, if not Mm -hmm. the only black person. Um, And so race and Christianity have always been intertwined with me. Um, I was serious about my faith. I was leader in youth group maintained faith in college when a lot of people kind of drift away or do other things. Then things started to get really real. After graduation, I joined Teach for America, Mm. moved to the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side, came face to face with uh, the kind of crushing poverty that you don't even think can exist Mm -hmm. in the world's richest country. And, uh, you know, I'm in the fourth poorest county in the U.S., and all of the stuff that goes with poverty, which has historical roots, right? People didn't wake up one day and decide to be poor. Um, that forced me to ask questions about justice. Hmm. And I went to this white evangel- these white evangelical roots that I had theologically and religiously and found that very wanting in terms of the situation that I was hmm. in. But I went to seminary, too. Hmm. And that's when things intensified even more (laughs) Um, Mm. because I'm starting to speak and write publicly about race and theology and the church at this point. Uh, I wrote an article on my newsletter called um, uh, Trayvon Martin's murder and the death of the evangelical racial reconciliation movement. I really Mm. trace it back to um, when Trayvon Martin was killed the following year, his killer was acquitted the phrase Black Lives Matter be- goes out on social media. That doesn't really pick up steam till 2014 sure. with Mike Brown's killing. But it was the same sort of, you know, random violence against Black people. And when I started mm-hmm. 
thinking about that, I mean, these Christians, most of whom were white, just had no category for it. And mm. either acted with outright exist, um, resistance or frustrating kind of apathy. And from there, it, it just, I mean, it intensified from Trump and his rhetoric around race to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing this string of cell phone videos of black people being brutalized to um, the Emanuel Nine, to the Unite the Right rally, all of these things that we don't even remember anymore because mm -hmm. so much happened. But it was this concentrated period of really revealing where we were as a nation and as a church in terms of race relations. Mm. Can we go back uh, for a moment to what you said about, okay, uh, Trayvon Martin, this stuff starts happening. You grew up in this white evangelical context. Can we talk about the mix of like what that theology taught and whether it was it the lack was it lacking in the sense that I'm going to just share my own personal experience like as a grew up in the military grew up my parents became you know born again Christians in their 20s when I was a young child so I grew up in a very highly nationalistic militaristic evangelical that was like the height of the evangelical movement in the military and one of the things that I've reflected on is these underlying beliefs that kind of connect with Jesus, one of which is like a very individual salvation that is based with a metocracy. So it's kind of like you got to do it. And then if you work hard enough, you can have this, I guess, American life, right? Um, do you think that's part of what we're kind of, kind of coming up against when we talk about systemic poverty, racism, the kind of stuff that you were experiencing in the Delta? That's a big part of it. So white evangelicals in particular are hyper individualistic. We know that Westerners in general are, are, are individualistic compared to the rest of the globe. But even amongst individualistic people, evangelicals are even more individualistic as the sociology and the polls tell us. So one book uh, I highly recommend is Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. They break all of that down in... Um, how to Fight Racism, my second book, I talk about the the cultural toolkit uh, of white evangelicals. Actually, that might be in the color of government. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, and and <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all of a piece. It's the way you're socialized and the way you're discipled, which is a mm -hmm. very conversion-centric faith of the way to tackle any kind of social problem is through personal conversion. But here's the here's the mm. wrinkle in all of that. The wrinkle is it's always highly selective. So mm. white evangelicals will be individualistic when it suits them. But they will mm. understand the systemic and the communal aspect aspects when it suits them as well. So you think about mm. the problem of systemic injustice. When you talk about it in terms of racism, there's all kinds of denials, gaslighting, all of this stuff. When you talk about an issue that they hold dear, like abortion and wanting to overturn Roe v. Wade, well, then it's a systemic issue. Then it's not a matter mm -hmm. of one person's individual choices. Oh, well, we have to change the laws. We have to change the policy. So mm -hmm. you see how that works. White evangelicals get it when it suits mm -hmm. them. But particularly on the issue of race, oh boy, that that then um, becomes the issue 
almost stands out singularly as the issue where um, none of those other rules apply. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> so what I, I'm actually, and I, now I want to circle back where you even started when you said, because I think this is a really important thing for our viewers and listeners to understand um, is because I think there's a discernment that you have here where you're you're operating, you've you've uncovered, right, this way of thinking that you're exposing in your in your books, yet you're also maintaining relationships with white evangelicals. You have a obviously that's the the roots of your personal faith. So do you what are the what are the qualities that you look for in a person that you know we can disagree? Yeah. We can have different you know, we can have different viewpoints and disagree, but there's something here that lets us actually have this conversation. I mean, I, I think of individuals like Karen Swallow Pryor, um, mm-hmm. David French, Russell Moore. These are Christians who are by and large conservative, both theologically and politically, who I would disagree mm-hmm. with, I'm sure, on some important matters. But it's more about two things. One it would. It used to just be one thing: humility. Now it's two mm-hmm. things: it's mm-hmm. humility and commitment to the truth. Mm. Right. So I'll talk to anyone, in particular, any white Christian, if there is a willingness to listen, be persuaded, learn. It doesn't always mean we'll come to the same conclusions. But there's not this combativeness of I'm right, you're wrong, or at least, you know, your experience or perspective holds less weight than mine and what I know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mm-hmm. for me the line, right? Like, I, I, I'm not offended by ignorance per se. I think there is, to an extent, a culpable ignorance because by now we got a lot of information accessible to us very easily. So if you don't know, yes. it's because you haven't tried. So mm-hmm. you know we have to take ownership on on that level. But not knowing in and of itself is not the the main issue. It's more about <laughs> do you do you hold your ignorance with arrogance? <laughs> There's a lot mm-hmm. of people who do that. Uh, so so that's yeah. the line. But then, like I said recently, the other line is: Do you are you committed to truth? Are you committed Mm -hmm. to facts? Because right now we're dealing with so many people who literally are believing conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Who who in the face of incontrovertible data refuse to believe the science, refuse to believe the election wasn't stolen, refuse to believe that racism continues to be a broader problem beyond just personal attitudes. Mm -hmm. And, and, And for those folks... It's they're ideologically committed to to a belief system that makes reasonable communication almost impossible because we cannot agree on reality. Right. Right. That to me is the the most devious work of, you know, whether you agree, you know, if you're listening and you agree with spiritual forces or not, like the devious work of not being able to find a commonality around truth um, is just a somewhat disheartening, but also like fascinating as like a social cultural phenomena that we're in. Um, Thankfully, we know that we can, I do believe that like this is a long walk of obedience that we're in. And I am curious, you know, 
you you've been obviously you're 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 embodying this work of course as a as an African American living through this world right but you've also embodied the work before the kind of tidal wave of the most recent wave I'll say let's go with 2020 you know mm-hmm. from George Floyd till now Good. and when you think about where we are um what what chapter would you add to your book you know I know you're continuing to write and you're continuing to bring is there anything that you would change in that work or anything that you wish was like an additional chapter for where we are in history today? I just love that question. Um, I'm always thinking <laughs> as a writer of, of revising. Um, and I will say that one of the things that makes tackling racism so hard is because the landscape is constantly shifting and yeah, it doesn't even shift at a constant pace. The shifting and the changes is even faster now. Uh, I mean, if you think mm. from the last 10 years from uh, Trayvon Martin to now, let alone the last, I don't know, six years, right? And the last two mm-hmm. years, right? Like you could divide the last chapter from George Floyd to now. All of that is shifting so rapidly. So it's an important question. I would add a chapter on white Christian nationalism and okay. on and on epistemology and truth seeking. Mm. So white Christian nationalism. And just for for anyone on the anyone on the show other than myself who just really wants you to define epistemology, could you do that for us? (laughs) It's a a, a multisyllabic word that's a lot simpler than it sounds, but it's just the science of knowing and and how do we know what we know? Uh, So so how do we uh, agree on what is true and verifiable and factual? Mm. Mm-hmm. So yes. obviously that's a, a big deal now. Um, the chapter on white Christian nationalism is because white Christian nationalism is, as I say, the biggest threat to the witness of the church in the United States today and the biggest threat mm. to democracy in the United States today. Mm. I was honored to be part of the most comprehensive report to date about the role of Christian nationalism in the January 6th insurrection. Mm. So much ink has now been spilt on the religious, specifically Christian symbolism on display at the insurrection. Mm. What this report does is unpack that, but also talks about the precursors Mm. to that. So um, there's a lawyer who authored much of the report, Andrew Seidel, who talks about the rallies leading up to the rally on January 6th, which then turned into an attempted insurrection. And, you know, there's there's the Jericho March, right? Where they're using this biblical imagery of marching around the city walls to come tumbling down. There's, in addition, there were many other events, there were many other prayers. um, And we cannot deeply understand the dynamics of that movement unless we understand the sort of religious mythology that's animating it mm, uh-huh. because, because these folks are, are, are taking on what they think is a holy crusade with a religious fervor. Yeah. And we have to understand the vectors that these ideas are being spread, which is in the churches. Mm-hmm. Churches are the biggest spreaders of white Christian nationalism, along with a certain media ecosystem. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. I would talk about that. And if, as a matter of fact, I gave a, a 
paper at the uh, Conference on Faith and History recently connecting the religion of the lost cause, which arose after the Civil War to explain the South's yeah. defeat and romanticize an antebellum South. And I connected that mm. with present day white Christian nationalism as the legacy mm. of that kind of belief. Uh, so so mm. there's a historical continuity there as well. I, I, I hate to say this, but sometimes I just like to like say the obvious things just to help make sure we're all on the same page. Like the first obvious thing that I want to make sure that we're all remembering is that Christianity has been used for evil through history. It does not mean that the true religion of following Jesus Christ is evil. Of course, it's not. It's the kingdom of God. But the religion has been used for destructive forces and evil all through history. If you just haven't had a history lesson in a while, I think it's important to remember that. The second is when I listen to you, one of the things I want to invite people to be is curious about why they might feel threatened by what you're saying. Like, if it sounds like, oh, no, that can't be true, or that's not my America, or whatever, maybe ask yourself what's behind that. Like, what what feels so scary about this conversation to you? Like, what is where, are you, where do you fear that this would go? Because so much of this, to me, narrative is incredibly fear-based and if you are a follower of Jesus, there is there is no fear in love, and perfect love drives out fear. So we should be able to have conversation where we ask those questions and we are vulnerable about those fears. Um, I think that I'd love to circle back again um, and ask you what it is that makes it okay to fight abortion, but yet the idea of systemic racism, like you said, is so threatening. What have you uncovered about what it is that's threatening? Is it a sense of loss of power or loss of security? A, a feeling that somehow there's going to be a liberal agenda that becomes communist? I, I Again, I truly want to know where you think that narrative, like what is that line of belief? I think it's about identity. I think mm. there are a lot of people who, if they lose certain tent poles, certain markers mm. in the culture, in politics, if those f fall, move, change, they don't know who they are mm. anymore. So mm. it, 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 name your issue. It could be Supreme Court justices, it could be LGBTQ plus issues, it could mm. be abortion, whatever it might be. By the way, prayer, all of prayer that, in schools, prayer and CRT, school, right? We can name all these things, right? All of those things have a history, by the way. So, so in the color of mm -hmm, compromise, mm -hmm. you can guess the part where people really push back on, on the history that I'm telling. It's not mm -hmm. whatever happened with the civil war. Mostly it's not that lynching was bad. They'll agree with that. When you, when I started talking about, the rise of the religious right in the 1970s, that's when people really take issue. Because now again, mm -hmm. it's identity. These are my okay. spiritual heroes. These are my political heroes. Mm -hmm. These are the messages I've literally grown up with in church, mm -hmm. on the news, from my peers, from my mentors. But here's the thing, because if somebody's listening and that's their experience, they're just going to think that's right and I'm wrong. I'm liberal. I'm this, that, the other. Here's the thing. Counterpoint to all of that. Look at the black church tradition. Mm. 
Here's the pernicious effect of segregation. Remember that phrase, 11 o'clock a.m. is the most segregated hour? Yeah. Here's what happens, particularly for white Christians. They have almost no meaningful exposure to how God's other children experience the mm. world and understand their faith. So these are Christians. Look at the demographics. Black people are the most religious, the most Christian in terms of numbers mm. and percentages of any racial demographic group. Right? We are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And yet, our list of priorities on justice issues or political issues is very different. Yeah. And our understanding of how racism operates is very different. So you don't have to take my word for it. All I say is the pandemic accelerated churches being online. Visit half a dozen black churches over the course of a month and a half. Mm. Just tune into some sermons yeah. and hear what black Christians are saying and, and, and how we understand these issues. I said a whole lot. That is <laughs> so. an incredible. No, I mean, that is such an incredible takeaway because when we started using this this platform for more of a space for these kind of consistent conversations, some people would reach out to me and say, I really am interested in changing and growing. I literally have no black friends. I don't know what, you know, they, they, were, they were earnest in their desire and they were hearing me say, nothing will change you more than a personal relationship. So I had not thought about the fact that you could, if you want to just, right, like, if you're going to put this much passion into what you believe to be true about right now in America and everything, maybe just put like 10% of that passion <laughs> to exploring the counterpoint mm -hmm. and maybe go to, yeah, even three or six services and just explore your own identity of like, what is it that comes into your mind? Because if you want to expose some unconscious bias, yeah. start to like put yourself in situations and listen to what happens in here, uh, I was just talking with a friend of mine, African-American friend, who said that she has a new friend. There was one from Poland, one from Ghana, who are telling her their experience of what they believed about African-Americans based on the media before wow. they came to the U.S. Yep. And how they're experiencing just African-Americans so differently than on the media. So that's cool. Maybe open your mind and say, yeah, when you hear when you think of the idea of a black person, you don't have a friend. What what? What are they dressed in? What do they look like? What image you, you'll you'll experience? I am deeply impacted by a media, by a world that is shaping me to believe perhaps certain things um, about a whole people group that I might not even have one one friend. I might. So, what if we just were able to move forward a little bit in that way? So I love love that that opportunity that uh, that invitation that you're making to our to our audience today. We'll give people some leads. Like, I don't understand who I listen to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll help you. Yes, we'll help you. Yeah. Uh, my my yeah, I'll, I'll drop on, some. I'll drop some in the show notes. Yeah. My, yeah, my give me some. I love Mike is Tyler Burns. Um, okay. All Nations. All Nations uh, Worship Assembly in Pensacola, Florida. Okay. Tyler Burns. Uh, nice. Micah Edmondson is a black church planter in the Nashville er, in Nashville. He has a Koinonia mm -hmm. church, Micah Edmondson. Um, okay. Certainly 
you could actually learn from folks who came before. So here's the thing, Nicole. It, it gets me every time. Martin Luther King Jr. is the most recognizable civil rights leader of the past century. Most people have never read a book he wrote. Most people have yeah. never even read Letter from Birmingham Jail, which is not even book length. Mm -hmm. so book is intimidating. Read Letter yeah. from Birmingham Jail. You don't even have to yeah. read it. We have an episode on our podcast where Tyler reads the letter, right? So, so Linked. We will link it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just saying... Like there are so many resources and, and I truly believe the counterpoint to white Christian nationalism is the black Christian tradition, which arose mm. specifically in response to racism, particularly within the church. Mm -hmm. So if you want to see mm -hmm. a Christianity that is staunchly opposed to racism, that's the, and I'm not saying it's perfect. It's made up of people, which means there's sinners, sure. which means there's flaws, but sure. particularly on how, we deal with racial issues. There's a lot to learn and there's a lot of resources. That's awesome. Okay. I want to ask you, uh, I'm going to ask you for some personal coaching if that's okay. Sometimes <laughs> on the show, I'm just like, I just want to ask. So I'm raising teenagers. Um, I love them deeply. What a world to have Gen Z uh, generation in my home. One of the things I'm experiencing, which is a little bit of a teenage type thing, but I would love your counsel is this huge pendulum swing, which is, okay, all of this is good. All of this is bad. Mm -hmm. And there's like this lack of ability to get to the gray. So there's a sense that like everything that came before is wrong and racist and, you know, and it's not in some ways I agree, but we're living here and you just were in Richmond, Virginia. You speak, you, you've got some videos out about the monuments when you think about the idea of throwing out a whole tradition, you you came into your faith through the white evangelical culture. How do you help, especially young people, navigate? What does it look like to faithfully pursue justice without basically doing the same thing and tribalizing yourself against a whole people group? Right, right. What a what a great question, and I see why it's a struggle. I mean, the gray areas are the hardest part. Um, for instance. Yeah. You know, we're talking about individual and systemic. Well, if we go to the word, then there's emphasis placed both on personal behavior and on systems that oppress whole people. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, yeah. both and. I think an avenue into those productive conversations about gray areas is history. So, mm. for instance, if, if you just look at any U.S. president, right? You can certainly go all the way back to George Washington, but you can even look at like John F. Kennedy and his role in the civil mm. rights movement. So he was in a, in a way much more amenable to racial progress than previous presidents, but he was not leading the way by any means. You could look mm -hmm. at Abraham Lincoln in the mm -hmm. same way, who um, even black people post-Civil War called the great emancipator. But in reality, mm. in, in, in his early days, Lincoln did not envision social equality of black people. Mm. He, he was anti-slavery, but that doesn't mean he was pro-black. So yeah. looking at some of these figures brings up these conversations about, you know, they did some good things, they did some bad things, right? Um, and I think That's that- so it gets to our theological beliefs, right? Like there's only one savior. Right. 
So if we're expecting other people, even people who do righteous things, virtuous things to be perfect, we're always going to be disappointed. And it's, Mm. it's a sign that we're still on spiritual milk Mm. to be on solid food recognizes, okay, they can do some things Mm -hmm. right and they can do some things wrong. Oh yes. Go on. I know that is so, it's so, I mean, that's so simple, but it's actually very profound because we do have this deep sense in our nature, which is like, this person's a good person. This person's a bad person. There's heroes and there's villains. And the reality is there's, there's not, there's like an in-between. And I love that idea that really deeply understanding history actually helps you have those deeper conversations um, in this like dirge of, like you said, we've got to have humility and a commitment to the truth to be even able to continue this conversation. Um, I'd love to ask you a question in closing. This is difficult work. Um, I know it's difficult work for anyone who's willing to engage in something that comes against people's idols. And I'm wondering just for you personally and professionally, how are you staying the course? What helps you stay in the fight? Well, I'll be honest, there are good days and bad days. I find myself um, very tempted sometimes to um, callousness toward Mm-hmm. Uh, my interlocutors, uh, particularly online. So, I mean, I've recently mm-hmm. been engaging people who disagree with me more. It's not okay. something I like to do. I'm a feeler, <laughs> you know. And so when when somebody comes with a criticism, I feel it first emotionally. There are some mm-hmm. people who are thinkers first, and they'll just look at the words and be like, no, that's wrong. And one, you know, yeah. they got to catch up to their feelings later. So it's not something that comes naturally, but I find it instructive, both for me and mm. for others. So it's less to change the person's mind and more as a pedagogical practice. But it's a it's a fine line to walk because it can I can very easily tip over into just being callous towards someone. Mm-hmm. And and so I try to moderate that. Um, so other things are just, you know, mind, body, spirit, trying to attend to ourselves as whole people. So I do try to be physically active regularly. And I use that language advisedly because if I say exercise, then it becomes this sort of (laughs) burden on me that, oh, I got to make sure I get my workout in. Whereas if I say physically active, I just mean my body needs to move. So that can be dancing to a song wildly with no one watching. It could be going for a walk in the neighborhood. It could be a structured exercise. Um, Mentally, I'm starting to read more. Mm. So when I was in in grad school, it was forced on you. I was going to say, that's because you've been in school for like 30 years. You haven't had a chance. Exactly. And then as soon as you're out, it's like, eh, um, you have to make it a priority. So I try to spend about an hour a day, um, whether that's history, um, fiction, whatever it might be. And that is such a, it's a wonderful practice. It's just cross Mm. cross training for your brain. And then spiritually, I am actually thankful that a lot of stuff is online now because I'm in a rural area. Um, It's really helpful. So, so there's daily devotionals, things like that. My, my friends at truth's table, they're actually reading the Bible to you 15 mm. a day. And, uh, you know, that, that that can be just a great spiritual practice to listen to. So um, I'm not going to pretend that. like I've got it all figured out. Um, there's also therapy in there um, yeah. to help unpack some of these 
you know, we've been through trauma after trauma as a nation with the pandemic, um, but also looking at some of the tragedies that have occurred, whether school shootings or, you know, police brutality, and then the individual level, the stuff that we've been through. My goodness, there's a lot to to work through that would be, uh, we would be well advised to get a trained professional to help us do that. Absolutely. Gosh, that's such a good word. You know, it's it's one of those things where I feel like we just can't hear it enough. I think that we we can elevate our leaders and our thought leaders like you. And we need to remember we're all human beings who are experiencing we're fragile beings, you know, in a difficult world. And God's given us a lot of these tools to stay embodied, to not just like be a floating head, disconnected from your body and your soul. And so those are, those are good words for us. Um, Hey, Dr. Tisby, if we want to stay in touch, what's the best way for us to stay in the conversations that you are starting and facilitating um, in this world right now? Stirring up trouble, uh, hopefully good trouble. (laughs) Or yes, or agitating, (laughs) agitating. (laughs) Um, the, The best place to keep up is at my newsletter, which is jamartisby.substack.com, jamartisby.substack.com. Or you can visit my web t- website, which is just jamartisby.com. And that has links to awesome. my books, the newsletter and, and um, speaking requests and all of that good stuff. That's awesome. Oh, man, that is so good. This has been so deep and uh, really, really helpful in this short amount of time. And I'm so grateful for your time that you've offered so generously to us and um, just praying blessing over your work that you would continue to feel confirmed in your calling Mm. and that God would give you just enough light for that next step um, as he often does. Well, thank you so much for your great questions and the wonderful opportunity. Thank you.